You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California today. And before we get started, I want to remind you, if you're interested in a lot of the other things associated with this podcast, like the uh, downloads and webinars and various lists you can join, make sure to go check out wealthformula.com. Also, if you're interested in our investor club, if you're an accredited investor, that's where you go to sign up for that and get your, put some of these concepts and uh, things that you're learning here into practice. Today, I want to talk about, you know, the 900-pound gorilla in the room, which is uh, Ukraine, right? Now, listen, Americans have always enjoyed uh, the uh, geographical uh, advantage of living far away from the rest of the Western world, right? We live across the shores, and it's allowed us in many ways and our people to look at many of the world's conflicts from a relatively disinterested distance, right? So who knows? I mean, if, uh, you know, if we didn't get bombed in Pearl Harbor, maybe we wouldn't have gotten involved with World War II, and who knows uh, how that would have turned out. But nevertheless, the thing is, the implications of major conflicts, like the one currently happening in Ukraine, eventually find their ways uh, they find their way to our shores, and more often they do so noticeably at the level of your pocketbook, right? And that's where you're going to notice it the most, in mo- most often. Uh, but make mo- mo- no mistake, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine will affect you eventually, and it probably already does, unless you drive a Tesla. I mean, you're seeing... You know, the gas station, the prices at the gas station are ridiculous, right? I mean, it's kind of crazy. But there are more subtle and long-term implications of this war that will continue to shape the global economy. How? Well, to better understand exactly that, I have a wonderful guest this week on Wealth Formula Podcast, a professor who was named one of the uh, 100 most important public intellectuals in the world by Foreign Policy Magazine, uh, Dr. Barry Eichengreen. And we are going to hear from Dr. Eichengreen right after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Dr. Barry Eichengreen. Dr. Eichengreen is the George C. Party and Helen N. Party Professor of Economics and political science at the University of California, Berkeley. He is also the author of In Defense of Public Debt in 2021 and Globalizing Capital, A History of International Monetary System in 2019. He's also been named one of the 100 most important public intellectuals by Foreign Policy Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Eichengreen. Pleasure to be here. You can call me Perry. Okay, Perry. Thank you. Um, you know, I felt like, you know, I, I felt like I was in class, so I had to make sure it was okay first. Uh, you know, I, I, I did my residency training at UC San Francisco, so not too far away from your, your institution there, Berkeley. You know, what we'd really like to talk about today is the 900-pound gorilla in the room, specifically with regard to this conflict in Ukraine. I'm, I'm curious, have you ever seen economic sanctions like the ones we're 
deploying against Russia right now? Is this un, unparalleled or have we seen this before? Well, economic sanctions have been tried in a variety of times and places, but I don't think that we've seen this kind of comprehensive financial shock and awe uh, sanctioned on a, uh, a medium-sized country like Russia before. So there have been sanctions on Iran, there have been sanctions on North Korea, but the current episode I think is exceptional, extraordinary, unprecedented. Let me back up and ask the obvious question, like how does this affect day-to-day Russian people? We know that there's some stories about how how Putin had had been stockpiling some some funds in preparation for something like this, but in reality, he can't really protect the the people of Russia from the implications of something like this. Right. So it, it's certain now that inflation in Russia is going to accelerate. The ruble has lost uh, a third to half of its value on the foreign exchange market. So that will make everything imported more expensive to the extent that it's still available. And domestic substitutes for imported goods um, more expensive as well. There's going to be rising unemployment in Russia because a lot of companies that rely on inputs from abroad that uh, utilize machinery purchased abroad are not going to be able to find those spare parts and so forth. Um, Internal airlines are not going to be able to fly for lack of spare parts. So Russia's misery index, uh, the combination made up of the combination of inflation and unemployment will go up now quite significantly. You know, one of the things that I find uh, found curious, Barry, was that amidst these crippling sanctions, there was one thing that really until today was not really restricted, and that was oil, uh, oil exports from Russia, which maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, why that was, and then now maybe the implications of the fact that now there is a sanction against oil exports as well. So um, oil exports are uh, important. Natural gas exports from Russia are important as well, especially to certain Western European countries. So Germany, Italy rely, uh, Hungary rely heavily on exports of natural gas and oil from Russia. And there's an element of shooting themselves in the foot economically if they are those imports. You know, there are circumstances where self-inflicted pain is worthwhile. Maybe they should be shooting themselves in, in the foot economically, given what's at stake. But their hesitancy, their reluctance is, uh, is understandable. In, in the longer term, these supplies are fungible. In other words, they can be rerouted without a lot of consequence for the global economy. So Russia can export energy to China. China can buy it from Russia rather than buying it from the Middle East. And Middle Eastern energy can then go to Western Europe instead. But uh, if you're going to import liquefied natural gas, you either need a pipeline or you need terminals where the tankers can unload it. And we know that uh, pipelines and terminals are not built in a day. Now, curiously, in the U.S., we have 
we, you know, the efforts of the last couple of decades of increasing our oil uh, or energy independence has resulted in us being one of the biggest oil producers, if not the biggest oil producer in the world. Isn't that correct? Yeah. We also consume, we're one of the biggest consumers in the world, but we are now, I think, very modest uh, net exporters. Does that in a way shield us from some of the implications of, of, of the energy uh, issue? It, it, very, it very much does so. So I think um, something on the order of 2 to 3% of U.S. oil imports come from Russia, which is very different from one-third to one-half in the case of a number of Western European countries. So President Biden's ban on importing oil from Russia is largely symbolic and symbolism has value here, but it's the Europeans who are going to really be paying the cost economically. So that'll be a burden on the European economy. I think they're at risk of a recession. But more than that, it's an uneven burden on the members of the European Union, and they're going to have to set up another fund like they did in response to the pandemic that compensates the countries where the countries that are not hit compensate the countries that are. We have been in in this country, even before this conflict, dealing with, you know, the highest levels of inflation that we've seen since the 1980s, 70s. How does this play out now? I mean, obviously the the war, uh, the energy crisis that's coming out of there. I mean, do you see this just adding on to a situation where we may end up with double digit inflation now? Well, answering that question requires a bit of a crystal ball because we don't know how long uh, the war is going to continue. We don't know, therefore, for how long energy prices and food prices as well, wheat prices and barley prices will remain high. If uh, this is a temporary phenomenon, then the Fed will just look through it. It will focus on domestic inflation Uh Without, uh, it will look at what what economists call core inflation as opposed to headline inflation. It will look through or strip out uh, increases in energy prices and increases in food prices on the grounds that those increases are temporary. Uh, I think that is still the working assumption at the Fed. So, uh, and that's what the markets apparently think as well, because they haven't altered their view of what the Fed is going to do. The Fed is going to proceed with a series of modest, measured, one quarter of 1% interest rate increases, uh, uh, seven times probably over the remainder of this year, in the expectation that inflation will begin to come down later this year and continue to come down towards, say, 3% in 2023. Um, If things get worse on the geopolitical front and energy and commodity prices continue to rise, all bets are off. Nobody knows whether that could happen or not. You know, speaking of inflation, the things that we feel uh, at home a lot of times are reflective in daily activities like getting, you know, getting some gas in your car. And, um, you know, we're we're at a wells about $130 a barrel. You know, I don't know. It seems like where you're at, it's always a little bit more expensive uh, than uh, other places in the country. But even down here in uh, the Central Coast, it's, uh, you know, five and a quarter per gallon. I'm curious, is some of that 
opportunistic for the uh, people selling us the gas because i mean if 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 as we are a net exporter in energy as you mentioned earlier should we be seeing these increases in prices of energy or is this you know just an opportunistic situation can you explain that i I mean it seems it's probably a very basic question but as a you know as a everyday consumer i wondered that myself it's like well i thought we were a net exporter and then russia's gas uh, oil situation doesn't really affect us so why is gas so expensive it's so expensive because the prices of energy are determined on world markets and not only here at home so um we export nat- natural gas now, but still import petroleum. And it, it's the refined petroleum that uh, uh, you pump at the gas station. And uh, uh, OPEC and world markets influence the, uh, the price of a barrel of oil, not only how much fracking we do at home. Um, we'll shift a little bit towards like global global supply change. Um, you know, is the U.S. going to have to you know turn away from some of the uh, eastern hubs for a period of time, or how, how do you think the supply chain gets affected? There are stories already about um, oil tankers being stranded uh, um, in the Black Sea, and questions about whether Russian tankers that are under sail, as it were, will be able to dock and unload. So it well could be that there will be a, uh, additional supply disruptions uh, affecting the United States, um, as well as um, other parts of the world. Um, I, uh, again, we don't know how long the conflict will continue, so it's hard to forecast the economic fallout. How is, how is China dealing with this how is it affecting them they've sort of taken a necessary uh you know position of of not necessarily um condoning putin but they certainly have not taken a hard stance away from him they're still doing business with russia how how is china coming out in this well china is is trying to position it itself i think as a neutral player right here not not aligned if you will I haven't seen much of an impact on the Chinese economy. In other words, uh, the annual meetings of the People's Congress earlier this week, I believe, issued a forecast for economic growth in the coming year of 5.5%, which is down a little bit from the 6% average they were looking at before the pandemic, but not much. China's exchange rate hasn't moved to speak of. Its uh, financial markets haven't moved to speak of. Uh, They don't do much business with Russia, actually. If you look at it, their trade is pretty well diversified between the US, Europe, other parts of the world. So from their point of view, the impact hasn't been severe. But I emphasize that despite the discomfort we all feel when we go to the grocery store or go to the gas station, the impact here in the United States hasn't been severe either. Wall Street fluctuates, but Wall Street always fluctuates in response to news. So far, the U.S. economy appears to be continuing to do okay. We're not, 
you know, we're not going to war, presumably. War, war has a different impact on a domestic economy than, you know, this kind of, um, I guess, Cold War sanctions and stuff. What would our involvement in that conflict militarily, what kind of implications would that have for the domestic economy? Our, our direct involvement in the conflict you're asking about, Buck, it, it would have yeah. uh, dramatic effects on, on all aspects of our lives, including the economy. But even without direct involvement, we can already see the writing on the wall in terms of increased defense spending. So we had grown accustomed in, in the U.S. to talk about the peace dividend and how we could use uh, the money we were saving from reductions in defense spending for infrastructure investment and early childhood education and a variety of other things that are good for people and good for growing the economy as well. And if we have to ramp up defense spending again now because we realize we live in a less safe world, that's going to make achieving those other economic and social objectives more difficult. Yeah, and and that actually would... um... I mean, I would think that that would be a major issue in Europe as well, right? You have a bunch of countries who essentially decidedly not spend a whole lot on military uh, spending that uh, are probably starting to think that maybe they they, they might need to after all. In, in, indeed. Uh, and in addition, the Europeans are committed, more, more committed than we are in the United States to what they call the green transition. Uh, um zero carbon emissions by 2050 at net zero and uh, um, moving entirely to sustainable energy, that's going to be more, those investments are going to be harder to make if they're at the same time investing in defense and if they're at the same time trying to curtail their reliance on Russian natural gas. So in Germany, they had, of course, moved away from nuclear power as unsafe they now move back. They want to move away from coal as climate unfriendly. Do they now move back? They have uh, some difficult choices. We qualitatively have the same choices here, but they had been moving faster in those directions. I know you have a you know you're an interest in economic history as well, and I'm I'm curious. You know, when you look at what's going on in Russia now, and you're going to have you're going to have a lot of pain with those people. What kind of what what can you see historically that can help us perhaps understand, you know, uh, Putin's ability to hold on to power? You know, an authoritarian, perhaps the world hasn't. I mean, perhaps in modern times we haven't quite seen such a powerful authoritarian. I don't know, but I mean, what historically, what how is this? What is this parallel to, if anything? Well, let me import a phrase from the literature on financial crises. The great economist Rudy Dornbush described financial crises as always occurring later than you thought, but when they occur, they're even more violent than you expected. So I think the history of these strongmen suggests that they typically hold on to power for longer than you expect. But then when their downfall occurs, it's swifter than anyone can imagine. So if you look at Nicolao Ceausescu in Romania in the 1980s, he held on for a very long time. He put his people through immense hardship, 
partly because he saw other other countries and other strongmen brought down by debt crises. So he tightened the screws economically. People starved, but he paid back the debt to Western banks. Then he was ejected from office and hung from a lamppost, literally, in 1989. So there are entirely plausible scenarios, hopeful scenarios, where there's an uprising in, in, in Russia against Putin and the people around him. But my guess would be it will take longer to develop than we might wish. But when it comes, it'll be more violent than we expected. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though. To, and I've thought about this a little bit and I understand it contextually that he is is so powerful. And people have uh, called him the uh, some indication that he's you know, ultimately the wealthiest man in the world. And but who's who's the power? Who's you know, like in the Soviet Union, they had the they had the Politburo, right? And they had the, they ultimately had a way of, you know, getting rid of the guy, so to speak, you know, uh, in the eighties, it seemed like every once in a while, the Soviet premier would get a cold <laughs> and they would, they would die a few days later or something like that. But, uh, and maybe this isn't really your focus, but I'm curious in terms of understanding checks and balances in Russia seem very different from even in Ceausescu era, you know? Well, what are, what and who might be the checks and balances in Russia, the security service? Well, that's what I'm trying to understand. Who would be the checks and balances now since in the Soviet Union, it was, it seemed fairly clear there was, you know, there was the party and the party was in charge, but now, you know, Putin is the party. Right. And Putin comes from the security service, which is, on side, as it were. The military, so that's an interesting question going forward, whether the military will end up being disenchanted with Putin as a result of getting bogged down in Ukraine, whether the powerful industrialists with yachts moored in Barcelona remain loyal to Putin or see the downside of of their allegiance. No, they're not getting to use the yachts. Those are the three countervailing forces I can imagine, the oligarchs, the military, and the security service. So that doesn't leave one terribly hopeful. Yeah, how, do you, how do you think, I mean, I'm just curious what you think is ultimately, if you had to predict, uh, how's this going to end up uh, in the Ukraine and Russia? How do you think? Just, just out of curiosity. I know you're not, this is not, you know, you're, you're not a prophet, you're an economist, but... <laughs> But I'm curious yeah. what you think is going to happen. And, 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 and I'm not a military specialist either. So like, like you, I've been reading about uh, Russian tanks and trucks getting bogged down in the mud and what kind of tires with what kind of tread they have, uh, how competent or not the Russian uh, Air Force is. So right. uh, those of us who are not specialists in that um, are operating in the fog of war. But uh, I think the most plausible scenario is one that, for the time being, Ukraine is partitioned, that the uh, legitimate government moves to Lviv in the West. It is resupplied from Poland by NATO. Uh, It controls significant territory, but only in the West of Ukraine, that some kind of puppet government is installed in 
Kiev and that uh, uh, the Russian army controls the eastern part of the country. So I think that's likely what the short-term future holds and how it plays out after that, I can't quite see. If what I just described is plausible, that, that then that may well restrain Putin's ambition to do something similar in Moldova or the Baltics or whatever, if he gets bogged down in this way in Ukraine. And there is a permanent resistance to Russian occupation, then he'll have his hands full and that'll limit his incursions elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, not quite Afghanistan because you've got a different terrain, but, you, you know, a, a massively resistant people as, a, as an ongoing problem uh, doesn't seem like very sustainable. The, the book is, uh, the most recent book is In Defense of Public Debt, uh, obviously not about Ukraine, but let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Tell us, tell us what it's about. Yeah, so we started on the book before the pandemic and obviously before this uh, problem in, in Ukraine. And we wanted to uh, articulate Mount uh, Defense of Public Debt really for two reasons. Number one, the economic and financial situation had changed in ways that the debt and deficit hawks hadn't recognized. So interest rates had and have and remain, had, had come down tremendously. So even when the debt to GDP ratio, debt relative to the size of the economy in the United States had doubled since the turn of the century, the share of GDP we devote to servicing that debt had fallen because interest rates have come down so grammatically. So we argue that it's necessary to rethink how much debt is prudent, how much debt is sustainable, how much debt is safe. And number two, the capacity to issue debt is critically important, exceptionally valuable in emergencies. So that was evident in COVID when we issued a lot of additional public debt in order to keep businesses open, food on people's table, and so forth. Government didn't have enough tax revenues to do that. So we borrowed and issuing debt to meet that kind of public health and economic emergency is uh, a valuable capacity. Last week, the government of Ukraine issued, I believe it was about $280 million worth of new government bonds uh, of public debt to meet its military and economic emergency. Uh, and throughout history, we've seen governments borrowing in order to defend their borders, uh, fight pandemics, deal with uh, natural disasters. And it's important, we think, for the critics of government borrowing to see this other side of the coin, if you will. Um, I'm curious on your take on this uh, on modern monetary theory. Yeah, so modern monetary theory is... Uh, a slippery doctrine. It means different things to different people, but it was developed over the last 10 years in an environment where there was no inflation by people who basically argued 
that governments could borrow unlimited amounts and central banks could buy the bonds that those governments issued without causing inflation. And that's a valid point of view if you're in this non-inflationary environment, in what economists refer to as a liquidity trap, where indeed uh, central banks can buy bonds hand over fist and issue uh, money and credit without limit, and inflation doesn't result because the economy is becalmed. So no sooner did modern monetary theory become fashionable or gather a following than that non-inflationary period ended. (laughs) And now we're in conditions where their uh, doctrine no longer applies. Yeah. And it's different. Obviously, it's different from what you're talking about. You're talking about changing the perception of what we think those safe limits of debt are, not that we should somehow, you know, turn debt into something completely defined differently. Right. We're very, very much of the view that there do exist limits on how much governments can and should borrow, how how indebted they should become. And we do believe that there is a time not very far off now where steps need to be taken to um, repay some of that debt, uh, restore and enhance the government's ability to borrow, because there will be another emergency in the South China Sea or some climate-related disaster or another novel coronavirus or something that will require that kind of fiscal response by governments. Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Barry Eichengreen, thank you very much for being on Wealth Formula Podcast uh, today. Your book, again, is In Defense of Public Debt. And uh, if we want to learn more about some of your writings, where's the best place to, to go? I have a, a website at Berkeley Economics Department on the Berkeley Economics Department page. Yeah, and that is actually eml.berkeley.edu backslash E-I-C-H-E-N-G-R backslash. <laughs> I'm glad one of us remembered that. But I'm going to, uh, we'll also put it in the, uh, we'll also put it in the show notes for people if they want to click on it. Uh, thanks again, uh, Barry. I really appreciate your time and it's uh, uh, really, would love to have you on again at some point. Okay, we'll do it. Thank you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Hope you enjoyed it. Scary stuff, right? We'll have to see what happens with Ukraine. You know, before we go, I do want to remind those of you who have not done so, if you're considering to sign up for our meetup coming up in April, uh, you're going to need to do so pretty quickly. That event our wealth formula meetup we usually do it you know we do it twice a year and it is uh, in phoenix this year on april 22nd and 23rd if you're interested make sure you check out wealth formula events with an s.com as soon as possible and sign up i think we're almost full already we always limit these to about 100 people because uh you know we just want to try to get to know everybody and make it sort of a you know nice community event instead of a a big circus anyway check it out again that's wealthformulaevents.com this is buck joffrey with wealth formula podcast signing off thank you for listening to the wealth formula podcast visit us on the web at wealthformula.com the information contained in this podcast are opinions not fact as always consult your own financial team before making any investment see you next time